Welcome to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. Again, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, We are continuing a series of lessons on Bible prophecy, end times prophecy. Uh, Big theological name is eschatology. Theologians put names to these different doctrines. And we've been entitling this series, Understanding the End, trying to give you a at least a working understanding of the great subject of end times events that's found so much throughout the scriptures. Now, we're going to break this down chronologically, as I've been mentioning, and we're still on that first section that I am trying to cover before we get to really what I think is the most pivotal event that will begin all the uh, chronological events, what we call the second coming of Jesus Christ. Right now we're talking about the signs of his second coming and why preachers like myself believe that Jesus is coming soon. And we were answering the questions that the apostles themselves asked of our Lord in chapter 24 of the Gospel of Matthew. They asked him, what shall be the sign of thy coming at the end of the world? And Jesus goes through in that chapter and other places in Mark and in in Luke as well uh, to lay out Uh, What I've shown you to be seven major signs, five of them negative, two of them positive. But then at the end of last week's podcast, I gave you what I like to call the one exclusive sign that really tips the scales, if you might say. Uh, These other signs, the negative sign of deception and warfare and natural disaster and sins in society, the hatred and persecution of Christians... Even the fact that there'll be a remnant of Christians that'll be being faithful and all the nations will hear the gospel. Uh, to some degree, people will say, well, that those all have been happening. And I would have some argument with that, but let's just put that aside to say that no one can argue about this last exclusive sign that I believe puts us indeed in the last days. And that sign was pictured by the rebirth of the nation of Israel, uh, the return of the Jewish people to their ancient homeland in the Middle East, known as Israel. Now, you know from our last podcast, and I don't have time to always review and repeat, but the Jews were ultimately removed off their uh, ancient homeland of Israel when they rejected Christ, and God gave them 40 years of testing But when they as a nation, not individually, because individual Jews did come to Christ, there was all the early church, the apostles, many of the early believers were Jewish, but as a nation, as God looks at Israel as his chosen people, as an ethnicity, a a national entity, they had rejected Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah. And so God finally allowed them to be uh, removed out of their land under persecution The Romans came in in 70 A.D., kicked them out of their land, and they remained in captivity around the nations of the world for 1,900 years or so. And last week we showed you that one of the great promises of the signs of the second coming, that Jesus said, you'll know that it's near, he said, when the fig tree, which is a picture of Israel, would rebud, would come alive after the dormancy of winter, and spring would would come, and the leaves would come on the tree, and of course, fruit would eventually come, and that's all a picture symbolic of Israel coming back to their land and finally being saved one day. And I ended last week's podcast by going through that great uh, passage in Ezekiel 37, where Ezekiel preaches to the dry bones and they come to life. And I showed you that it's in two stages 
the re- rebirth of Israel is a physical uh, return and then a spiritual salvation. And I believe that's what we need to understand of why Israel uh, today, uh, the Jewish people back in their homeland of uh, Israel in the Middle East there, uh, is a fulfillment. And I think the most exclusive and important fulfillment to tell us that we're in the last days. Now, again, we cannot pick a day. We should not try to set dates. I never do that. Any any uh, proper interpretation of Bible prophecy would uh, definitely avoid that. Uh, Jesus said, no man can know the day or the hour. But he did say, in answer to their question in Matthew 24, 3, that we can know the signs of the times. And now let me get back further into that because our time kind of got away last week. And I told you I wanted to return to talk about the Jewish people. I love the Jewish people. I think every true Christian, uh, biblical Christian, loves Israel, loves the Jewish people. God uh, gave us the Bible through the Jewish people. Our Savior Jesus Christ was born a Jew. Uh, He spent his whole life some 33-plus years uh, in Israel. He never went outside of the borders of that little country. And for anyone who calls themselves a Christian to be anti-Semitic, to be anti-Israel, is contrary to the entire Word of God. And so let me just say how much I love Israel, the state of Israel, the Jewish people, and we ought to pray for them uh, always. Paul said to the Jew first and also to the Greek, uh, to the Gentile. And so... As we talk about the Jewish people as a fulfillment of of end times prophecy, we need to get into some history again. And and this is just fabulous history. I tell our people here at our church that if you were one who kind of grew up, whether through grade school or secondary education, whatever, and you hated history, you thought it was boring with all the dates and times and places and people and events, um, you ought to change your view when you think about true biblical Christian spiritual history as God has worked. History is his story as God has worked in time. And there's no greater story than the story of the Jewish people. There's a lot of good documentaries out there, even from just a purely Jewish point of view, not a Christian point of view, but it will give you some of this good history. And I'd recommend uh, looking up some of those. But let me just give you a synopsis, just a quick summary of how important this history is to this idea that the Jewish people would return to their land Jesus said that the fig tree would blossom. You knew, you know that summer was nigh, or summer pictures the time of blessing. I think it is symbolic of the millennial kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. We'll get to that later when we begin to look at all the chronological events associated with the second coming. But I think the Lord, in, in promising the Jews would return to their land, he was also promising they would never again be removed out of their land. There are many... Uh, even Christian scholars and, and churches, denominations, uh, seminaries that do not believe that the modern state of Israel uh, is of any importance or any relevance, especially in the subject of end times prophecy. And it's because they, they make a terrible mistake, and I think it's a very devastating mistake, uh, by holding to a view that's been called different names, primarily called replacement theology. Uh, if you've never heard of that uh, concept, basically, in a nutshell, it's this. Uh, Catholicism first ho- held to this view, and then the Protestant reformers came later, and, and your denominational churches, sadly, most of them have held to this view that uh, 
Israel in the Old Testament, uh, once they rejected Christ as a nation, God did away with them and, and he ended his relationship with them. And the church, which according to uh, the view that those who hold this hold to a universal invisible concept of the church, they believe the church, which they say is all the saved, took the place of Israel so that all the promises uh, including a promise to restore Israel to their land in the end times. They believe that's irrelevant because they don't think that promise was really made to, to the Jewish people, the, the 12 tribes, but that just is now uh, given to the church. And since the church never was promised a special land, that's true, that all those promises about a homeland, about coming back to Israel, restoration, all that is just completely useless and futile and unnecessary. Well, I think that's a false doctrine. I think it's a very uh, incorrect way to look at Scripture. It's a very non-literal way to look at Scripture because the Old Testament is full of promises that God made, and I don't believe God ever breaks a promise. He always keeps his word. And he said to Israel in many plain passages, I read a few of them last week. I want to read a little bit more today uh, about how God promised not only did he say, I will send you into captivity as a judgment uh, on your sin for rejecting me and rejecting the Messiah finally, uh, but then I also promise in my mercy and grace to keep my promise I made to Abraham and to David and that I will bring you back to your land. And he said to Abraham that that land would belong to the Jews always. It was God giving that land to the, to the Jewish people that made that covenant so important to Abraham. And it said from his line all the world would be blessed, and they have been through Jesus the Messiah who came into the world as a Jew. But then that Davidic covenant, I've referred to it already, but that promise to David that one from David's lineage, from his line, would rule over the earth forever and ever. That's found in 2 Samuel 7 uh, in 1 Chronicles. Uh, I believe it's in chapter 17. You'll find it there. It's repeated there. But nonetheless, it's saying that someone from the, the family lineage, the ancestry of David, the king, who would have to be from the tribe of Judah, of course, would have to be a Jew, uh, would one day rule on the throne. Now, again, if you hold to a replacement theology view, a replacement idea that the the promises to Israel are no more and they're irrelevant, then all those promises that God made to David and to Abraham and throughout the Old Testament time and time again to the Jewish people, well, then they become meaningless. And I think that's really a wrong way to look at it. God never makes promises and just annuls them kind of willy-nilly, kind of Indian giver kind of thing where, you know, how our nation once uh, promised the native Indians that they'd give them this land and then they'd take it away. Uh, that was wrong. It was a horrible thing that was done. And God never breaks his promise. So with that in mind, I'm taking a literal uh, interpretation of these passages in the Old Testament that say that God uh, would not only remove Israel in a form of punishment where they would go into captivity for 1,900 years, but also he would bring them back to their land. We saw that a little bit in Ezekiel 37, but there's many, many prophets. There's so many uh, that it, it becomes just a regular theme of the Old Testament, a theme called restoration. All the major prophets, most all the minor prophets for that matter, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, Hosea through Malachi, you can find it repeated. Let me read one passage per se, uh, one of my favorites, that talks about how God would bring back Israel to their land 
And once he put them back in their land, and we're going to talk about that modern history in a minute, he would never remove them off their land again. And this is in Amos chapter 9, the, the prophet Amos. Remember, we call them the minor prophets. I don't know who came up with that name over the centuries, but uh, theologians, scholars, preachers call them the minor prophets, Hosea to Malachi. They're definitely not minor in importance. I never think that. I think they've been called minor because they are shorter books. That's true. But they're rich in, in teaching and in beautiful books. And I love how Amos ends his prophecy in chapter 9, his prophecy from God. And listen to what he says. This is, again, about this idea that God's going to return uh, uh, the, the nation of Israel back to their land. And he says in verse 14 and 15, And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Now, that passage, those two simple verses, are just so rich in what I want to talk about today. And that is that God promised he would bring back the Jews to their land. Now, there's where we got to get into some history that has been so well developed and, and uh, spoken about, written about, and, 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 and televised in programs and so on that uh, I could just, uh, again, defer to others uh, who are much smarter and done a better job and more thorough than I would be. But let me just, for the sake of my podcast I'm doing with you, give you just a bit of the history uh, of how God returned the Jews to their land. Now, that history has to include, first of all, all of the persecution. I read about it in Deuteronomy 28 last week. I hope you listened to that podcast. And throughout, uh, really beginning after 70 AD or with 70 AD, with the uh, destruction of the, of the temple, the second temple it's called, that was built by Zerubbabel and the returning Jews after the exile in Babylon and Persia, we know that that temple, the temple that Jesus walked in, was totally leveled, destroyed by the Romans. Jesus even foretold it would happen, and it did. Well, once they were dispersed, the, the Jewish people basically didn't have a homeland for uh, really almost 1,900 years. And all through those centuries, you could go through the history of the Jewish people being persecuted by every nation of the world, literally where they went. And, and there's so many examples of this. Uh, we could talk about the Catholic persecutions and the Inquisitions and the in the Crusades, supposedly to rescue the Holy Land from the Muslims, which in fact, uh, as a part of that, killed many, many thousands, if not millions, of innocent people, including many, many Jewish people, whom the Catholic uh, system—it's not a church; it's a system always hated the Jews. They were the first ones to put them in ghettos and put uh, identification markers like stars of David, yellow stars on them. Uh, you could go through and see up into more modern times with the pogroms in Russia. And I think I've mentioned some of this already, so I'm not going to belabor it. But I do want to get into the more modern history when we begin to see a uh, move of the Jewish people to go back to their ancient homeland in the Middle East. You look on a map today and you see the nation of Israel. It's a tiny little nation. 
it's somewhere around 120 miles north to south to about 50 miles at the widest from east to west. You know, it's bordered on the north with Lebanon and Syria on the on the west by uh, Jordan and, and, and you go down to Egypt in the south. And of course, uh, in a, on a modern map, you can see all of that. But remember, for about 1900 years, there wasn't an Israel. Uh, if you would have got a map prior to 1948, when they became a modern state, there was no Israel. It was called Palestine. And Palestine was a name given to that land by the Romans. They call it Palestina. And it was given around 135 uh, AD. There was a rebellion called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, a man who claimed to be the Messiah again, thought he was going to gather a gathering of of followers and overthrow the Romans who had kicked the Jews out of their land about, uh, you know, 65 years earlier. Well, his revolt was was nothing. It wasn't of God. It had no power, and they uh, brought it to nothing. The Romans squelched that rebellion, and they were so tired of messing with it that the emperor at that time, and I can't recall his name for sure, but it was in 135. You can look it up. Um, one of those cruel emperors at that point. The Roman emperor said, I'm going to rename that land and I'm not going to let any Jews at all go in there again. And he called it Palestina. And, and the shortened version uh, stuck for the rest of those centuries till modern times. It was called Palestine. But it's not right to call it Palestine today. It's not Palestine. But here's how the history went. As the Jews endured such terrible persecution all the way up through the the Reformation period of the 1500s, the 1600s. The Jews were hated everywhere they went. They were kicked out of Spain in in 1492, the same year that that Columbus uh, discovered the New World. We know that they were uh, hated and persecuted in in Russia and and most of Europe, wherever they went. Well, the Jews began to see that there was no way they were ever going to be able to um, defend themselves and have security and, and have any kind of future as a people. Uh, they were in fear of extermination, of, of their whole uh, way of life being exterminated and, and being uh, lost. And so uh, Jews in the 1800s especially began to uh, kind of talk among themselves. And this history is fantastic. I'm just going to give you the very uh, simplified, shortened version of it. But uh, they began to see the need to go back to their homeland. Uh, They knew where they came from. They knew that land was given to them by God. They never lost hope in that land. They prayed for the peace of Jerusalem, as the psalm tells us. You could look it up. God tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem as a city had been uh, taken over by many various uh, foreign invaders, and and, and it was uh, usurped, and and, uh, it was controlled by all kinds of different nations and empires. But In the late 1800s especially, a group of Jewish people began to have a desire, a real burden, to go back to their ancient homeland. And and in the year 1900, actually, I think it may have been 1899, it's very close to 1900, right around there, um, they they held a council, it was called the First Zionist Congress, and it was led by a man who would become very important in the history of, of, of the modern state of Israel. His name was Theodore Herzl. And Theodore Herzl and, and, and many other Jewish men, primarily from Europe and America, 
decided they were going to try to organize themselves in an attempt to begin to go back to their homeland in what was then still called Palestine. Well, here was a problem. Palestine was not uninhabited. It had been inhabited by Muslims who really didn't care about the land. That's true. Um, they had made it nothing but a wasteland. Uh, there was hardly a tree in the whole land. You could look up, for instance, the... the um, a diary and journals of Mark Twain. Mark Twain visited Israel. I think it was in around 1858. I read about this, but you can get the details. You can look it up. But when Mark Twain visited the uh, what we call the the Holy Land in the 1850s, right before the Civil War here in America, he wrote about how just totally uh, disappointed he was. The land was just nothing but waste. There was hardly a tree in it. The Muslims had had created nothing but swamps in certain places. They hadn't hardly planted any anything there. Uh, it wasn't cared for, wasn't loved and appreciated. Uh, but when Theodore Herzl's group began to organize, they decided they're going to try to go back and buy land in in uh, Pal- Palestine. Well, if you know anything about your history, up until World War One, that started in 1914 and of course ended in 1918, uh, the land then called Palestine was owned by the empire known as the Ottoman Turkish Empire, and the Ottoman Turkish Empire was of course a primarily Muslim, if not all Muslim empire that really, again, uh, we're, we're, we're very anti-Semitic. It's a proven fact. Nobody needs to prove this to you that uh, Islam and, and Judaism have never gotten along. The Jewish people uh, have always been hated by Islam. And ever since Ishmael was born, when Abraham made that terrible mistake to get ahead of God and him and Sarah, instead of waiting on God, they brought Hagar into the picture. And Ishmael was born and it says he would be against his brother uh, since then, and the Arabs are the descendants of Ishmael and and Esau, the Edomites, and they've been at war and conflict with Israel ever since. And so the Ottoman Turks were nothing but a, a continuation of the persecution and hatred of the Muslim nations over in that part of the world, the Middle East, against Israel. It's still the same today. But nonetheless, back to Israel's uh, history here. So when the Ottoman Turks were in controlling that land, um, they were not real <laughs> positive in, in uh, wanting to promote is, uh, Jewish people coming back to this land. Whether or not they knew exactly what their plan was, I'm not sure. I don't have that documentation to be sure of it, but I can tell you they weren't really going to promote that. They weren't going to uh, be a, uh, a help to the Jewish people trying to return to Palestine, their land, uh, later known as Israel. And so, but a big event happened. Because of World War I, and, and the Ottoman Empire, of course, sided with the Germans and the, uh, the powers in, in, in the First World War uh, of Germany and its allies, well, the Ottoman Turks lost the war along with Germany, and their area was split up among the victors who were France and, and the United States uh, and England, of course. And one of the things that happened was the British were given control of that area known as Palestine. And the British, who were more sympathetic, uh, definitely more biblically based, uh, England was a great, at least former Christian nation that sent out missionaries and had a, a pretty strong Christian history. And they were more sympathetic to the Jews. And so they began to let the Jews come back uh, and make immigration back to uh, to immigrate to the uh, Holy Land. And I remember it's still called Palestine. Uh, and for some time, the uh, British allowed the Jews 
uh, to buy back parcels of that land. Well, remember, uh, this is this is from 1917. There was a very important declaration called the Balfour Declaration uh, by a general by the name of Balfour who allowed the Jews to begin to have some presence in that land. It gave them some permission to migrate back to their land. And this really opened the doors for more and more Jews to begin settling back in the Holy Land, back in Palestine, as it was still then called. But a conflict began to be began to rise immediately. Because the Arab Muslims that were already living on that land, like squatters, remember the land really belonged to Israel from the beginning, to the Jews. It was given by God, it's always been their land, but God had kicked them off of it, allowed the, the uh, Arab Muslims to take it over as a part of the punishment against Israel. But now, remember, we're starting to see the, the budding of the fig tree that Jesus spoke of. The Jews are beginning to turn back to their land. All kinds of conflict happened for uh, from about 1917 to the end of World War II. Jews were making some migration back, but there was battles, there was skirmishes and guerrilla warfare between the Arabs and the Jews. All this could be documented very thoroughly. I'm giving you the very abridged version. But you know exactly then the biggest event that happened was the Holocaust. And the Holocaust... Uh, and I don't want to go too far into it, but it's one of the most horrendous uh, world-changing events that ever happened. The systematic murder of six million innocent Jews, which made up a third of the entire Jewish population, really of the world at that time, and a lot of Europe's Jews, uh, were killed by the maniac Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. And thank God, because of the intervention of America and Britain and France and even the Soviet Union that came in, uh, you know what happened, and the war uh, was won by the Allies. But the Holocaust, which uh, then was brought out into the open publicly, when those troops, American, British, Russian troops, came in and liberated those death camps, they began to see the horror of what had happened, that these anti-Semitic killers uh, were trying to systematically wipe out the Jewish people. It was a terrible thing, and, and world sympathy was really growing. Well, you know how the Bible teaches that, that God and his providence is able to take even the wicked and evil of men and turn it to good for his purposes. That's providence. Well, God did that in the situation with the Jews. Because of the sympathy of the world, something very important happened. It was an amazing thing that happened. Well, because of World War II and, and, and the attempt of the victorious allied nations and those who were with them, uh, they created a new organization, as you know the name of it, it's very well known today, called the United Nations. Uh, the United Nations uh, was kind of an outgrowth of an earlier group called the League of Nations after World War I. These were both organizations attempting to bring peace to the world. Well, you can see how well the League of Nations worked. It didn't work at all. World War II started not more than about 20 years after World War I was over. Uh, but anyway, man tries to do what he thinks he can do. And so the UN was formed, and it was an attempt to bring all the nations of the world together under certain uh, laws and regulations and rules of war and on and on to try to promote peace, to make sure the, the world would never go through uh, the horror, the terror of another world war like World War II. Well, in that forming of the United Nations, the problem with the Jews over in Palestine was erupting more and more. And remember, 
The, the British had been allowing Jews to come back way back since 1917, really. So for basically 30 years, uh, Jews have been coming back. But the conflict between the Arabs and the, and the Jews was rising. And the British, unfortunately, they succumbed to pressure, primarily from the word O-I-L, oil, Oil was even big at that time. It started to become a real commodity to the world. And the British were afraid to offend the Arabs who were supplying much of Britain's oil for gasoline and other uses that they decided uh, to side with the Arabs and stop allowing the Jews to migrate. And they cut down the numbers of of migration uh, from Jewish people back to uh, Palestine, to the Holy Land, and the Jews, of course, were outraged, and, and it created even more conflict, and, and there was terrorism going on. There was battles. There was fighting and killing and, and all kinds of stuff. So the U.N. took up the issue, and the Jewish people uh, basically approached the U.N., and, and remember, you have world sympathy after the, the Holocaust. Uh, the people of the world are just uh, completely outraged. Uh, you know, about what happened to the Jews. And so uh, the Jewish people who were back in their land and Jews from other parts of the world who wanted to come back to their land all petitioned the UN through their nations, like the United States and others, to allow the Jews to have at least a part, a piece of land back in their ancient homeland. This is what men like Theodore Herzl and the others that had gathered about 50 years earlier in, in uh, uh, Switzerland, uh, they, they met, I, I believe it was that they met at, uh, at um, Basel, Switzerland, and those men had wanted to do this very thing. It took about 50 years for it to become a reality, but they pressured their nation's representatives at the UN uh, to vote to allow uh, the people of Israel to have their ancient homeland back. It's one of the most thrilling pieces of modern history you'll ever watch, ever know. I would be, I would urge you to look further into it. I've watched many a documentary. I've seen a lot of the actual black and white footage of how this all happened. But anyway, I'll give you the short version again. Basically, in 1947, I believe somewhere in November of 1947, a vote came up where the United Nations voted among all its nation states members about allowing the Jews to have a part of land, a piece of land, a parcel of land in what was still then called Palestine. And the vote was close. Not all, not all nations allowed them. Some nations, Muslim nations especially, that were still very uh, prejudiced and bigoted against the Jews. Uh, your communistic countries that, that hate anything righteous, hate anything to do with God, they all voted against it. But there was enough uh, public opinion around the other nations of the world, especially because of the support of America and, and England and several other nations that had fought in World War II to liberate the world from Nazism. Uh, the Jewish people got the vote, uh, and, it, and it passed, the resolution passed to give the Jewish people their own uh, uh, piece of land. And it, 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 it was set to happen a few months after. It didn't happen immediately. They had to make some preparations, and a lot went on. But the date that will go down in infamy, and we just passed the date here just a few days ago. Uh, on May the 14th, 1948, the nation of Israel was born. What an amazing thing. The mandate, the UN resolution allowed them to declare themselves a new state, a, a sovereign, self-autonomous state on May 11th of 
uh, or I'm sorry, May 14th of 1948. And that moment, literally a nation was born. And one of the most thrilling pieces of history that you need to be reminded of is that when Israel decided to become a nation uh, and, and declared their independence, uh, there in Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv was the, uh, Jerusalem was still there, but Tel Aviv was kind of the uh, headquarters, the capital at that time, of course, where all the business was conducted. And in Tel Aviv, uh, the leaders of the Jewish people who had been moving towards this for decades, they met together and they, in fact, uh, declared to the world, we are now a sovereign state. They elected their first prime minister, a uh, great man by the name of David Ben-Gurion. And Ben-Gurion and his uh, other uh, leaders and, and, and comrades in arms, if you will, uh, were there at the hotel there in Tel Aviv and, and declared themselves uh, a new state. They raised up on the flagpole. The, the flag of David, the, the modern state of Israel, was born it was a fantastic piece of history. And one other thing to add that we cannot forget, that the first nation to recognize the new state of Israel, the modern state of Israel, no more Palestine, forget that, the first nation to recognize Israel as a sovereign, autonomous state, thus giving it credibility, was the United States. And our president at the time, Harry S. Truman. Truman called the... Tel Aviv Hotel and got on the phone with David Ben-Gurion and stated his acceptance and the acceptance of the United States as a country to recognize Israel as a modern state. It was a fantastic thing. Well, then since 1948, now here we are near, nearly 70 some years after that, Israel has fought five battles. In fact, they fought the first battle right after they declared themselves to be a new state. The Arabs wanted nothing of it. They got together and tried to invade and, and wipe out the little tiny nation, but God has been with that nation. Remember Amos 9? I, I return to that. Before I end, I'll remember, I'll remind you that Amos said that once God would put them back to the land, they'd never be removed out. And five major wars have been fought primarily by the enemies of Israel attacking them. But one, on one occasion, the Israelis knew they were going to be attacked, and they preempted that attack. And in every case to this very day, the state of Israel has, has rebelled, re repelled, I should say, repelled their, their enemies. They have defeated uh, overwhelming forces against them in the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, uh, battle after battle in 48 and 1955. You can read about all these. You can see the history. I can tell you this, God has proven his word is true. He said, when I bring back my people, they'll not be, be uh, moved out of that land again. And as I bring it to a close today, and I'll pick up next week, I will just tell you this, Israel, the Jewish people had to be in their homeland for Jesus to be able to return to them because he promised he was coming back for them and for the world. And we'll pick up next week and show how that all comes together as we head to the first and most thrilling and exciting event that's on the horizon for you and I who believe that Jesus is coming. We're going to talk about the rapture next week as that'll be the first of the dominoes, if you will, to set the stage for the end of time. Thank you for listening. Remember, conviction for truth, compassion for people.